Okay, I want to welcome everybody to the second in a row service. Something to celebrate, not take for granted anymore. And uh, guess what? Our popular connection card is back, stuffed in the bulletin. If you fill it out, and on the front for your information. And also on the back, prayer request. And there's uh, different announcements which you can uh, commit to. Later on, there might be some upcoming uh, sermons that you can uh, what be scripture with that you can go ahead and prep for because we're not here to be entertained. <laughs> we're here to participate. At that, I'd like to have the opening prayer for our service. Dear Heavenly Father, let us open our worship assembly with open hearts purified by your Son's blood. Let us sing with enthusiasm and understanding. Let us listen attentively to the prayers, the songs, and the sermon of the service. Thank you for giving us the communion observation this day. We want the worldly barriers in our lives broken down to let your Holy Spirit in. All glory be yours through Christ Jesus, by the divine guidance of yours and ours, Holy Spirit. Amen. And just another announcement. Uh, after uh, the communion is taken, if you hang on to your cups, and as you exit the door over there, there'll be a wastebasket to dispose of them. Thank you very much.
Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Be with us, and study with us the word of God, pray with us, and sing together songs and spiritual songs. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Now we're now we're uh, speaking up. Good to see you. Good to have you here. And we look forward to many more times when we will be together in the same capacity, singing, praying, preaching, thinking about one another, and greeting one another uh, with. Uh, the greeting of brothers and sisters in Christ. The statement Jesus made, and he's sitting, he's sitting on, it says he's sitting on the mount, so he's sitting in the temple area, and he's looking at everything around him, and he's talking about some events, some uh, historic events that are going to take place, but at the same time he makes a, makes a statement that is the first time it's made in the New Testament and it's not made again. And that is, he, he issues a warning. And the warning is, he says, there's some people coming who will say, I am the Christ. And he says, they're coming in my name to say that I am the Christ. What he's warning about is that there will be some imposters, some frauds, acting under his name. Now, to keep this in mind, the fact that he was the Christ had not been fully established in the minds of most people. Now, the, the word Christ means the anointed one. And from the Old Testament, the scriptures in the Old Testament predicted the coming of the anointed one. The anointed one of God. Which involved the fact that he would be a a prophet, and he would be a king, and he would be a priest. He would be, in fact, the son of God. But, but basically, what he's, what he's warning is that there, there'll be some deceivers coming along, some charlatans, some false claimants, some pretenders to be him. Now, he's saying it will be the Christ pretending to be the Christ, but coming in his name representing themselves as him who is the Christ. Now, there are other warnings. And I said this is the only time Jesus said this, basically. But there are other warnings in the New Testament by the other writers that, that this is going to take place. For instance, in 2 Peter chapter 2 at verse 1, it says, There were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who will privately bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. Denying the Lord that bought them. So they were, he, he was warning them, saying that there's going to be some coming who will deny 
basically that I am the Christ. Jesus was, was of course, making the claim that he was the Christ. And he did that, you remember, in Matthew chapter 16, when he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Blessed are you, Son of Barjona. He said, Flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father, which is in heaven. On another occasion, in 1 John 2, verse 22, the, the writer says, Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? Charlatan. Now, now what is a charlatan? What is a, an imposter? An imposter or charlatan or fraud or someone who, who wants to uh, be someone else to be a false claimant is someone who wants what somebody else has attributed to themselves without having to exert any energy or any effort in order to attain to it. In other words, they want to be someone that they are not, that they do not have a rightful claim to be. Now, Paul, the apostle, made the same warning, gave the same warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, at verse 3. He says, I fear, lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, wait a minute, somebody's going to preach another Jesus that we haven't said anything about. That would be a false claimant. That would be a pretender. That would be a charlatan. Someone who's saying, I am something that I am not, really. But I want, I want the, I want the prestige. I want the notoriety. I want to be this person. I don't want to earn the right to be this person. But I want to be this person. And he says, if you've received another spirit which you've not received of, of us, or another gospel which you've not accepted, you do well to bear with them. In other words, you need to investigate this a little bit. Now, imitation is in fact a, a form of flattery. We know that it is. But at the same time, it's, it's not legitimate. It's not legitimate to want to be someone that you are not. To want to have the prestige, the, the position, the status, the accolades and so forth that you don't deserve. That's, it's not right. And history is replete with people who have come along wanting to be someone else. Pretending to be someone else. We know that, don't we? Think about the Elvis impersonators. Elvis had the goods, as you say. He had the right to be Elvis because he was Elvis. He was, some called him the king. The king of rock and roll. But others want to impersonate him and they want to have the, the aura of acceptance and of esteem that Elvis had as a performer. But there are even more individuals like this around who have come along wanting to be who they were not, and trying to deceive the, the public into thinking that they were someone who they were not. I'm, I'm thinking of, a, of a, uh, a family from Russia called the Romanov family. The Romanov family ruled as monarchs, as rulers in Russia, until 1918. And at that time, the Tsar, Nicholas II, and his family 
were actually assassinated, killed. All of them. His wife and himself, a son and four daughters. But since that time, there have been people who have arisen down through the period of time and have said, I am Alexi, the son. Frauds. Most of you have probably heard of Anastasia and the different claimants that have come along, the different women that have come along and said, I'm Anastasia of the Romanov family and I, I have a right to the, to the Romanov title. I have a right to the rule in Russia. I'm, I'm, I'm an heir, and a legitimate heir of the throne. Well, of course, these have been uh, uh, proved to be wrong. Now, the reason why one would claim to be the Christ is a little different than this. There are three reasons, basically, why someone would claim to be Christ, the Christ. The first is fame. The next is power. And next is fortune. Now, the reason why this is is because Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. He was God in the flesh. Uh, there are a couple of passages in the book of Isaiah that talk about this. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that talks about him being born of a virgin. And his name would be called Emmanuel. Matthew one twenty three is the fulfillment of that. Which is God with us. So when someone says, I, I am the Christ, what they're saying is, I am God. I am God. And again, in, in the, the book of uh, Isaiah, in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, he's actually called the Prince of Peace, the Almighty Father. He's the God. He's God. So obviously, when, when someone's going to come along, and Jesus is making the warning there, some are going to come along saying, I am the Christ. What they're saying is, I am God. I'm God. Obviously, that's going to bring, in their minds at least, the fact that they are famous. They are notorious. They are above others. Now, men have historically, rulers, monarchs, and so forth, have historically tried to accede to this, to this point or ascend to this point of being God. Now, if you recall, and when, when you're more than a mortal man, you're something else. And we're, we're actually uh, inclined to think that away all about ourselves anyway. We don't want to be average. We want to be above average. We don't want to be smart. We want to be super smart. We want, don't want to be fast. We want to be the fastest. We want to ascend to the top. And that's how it is with the ruler. A ruler wants to ascend to the top. And the top has no ceiling if you are, in fact, God. Now, the, the old rulers of the olden times, and even some today, actually believe that they were invested with the factor or the being of being God, divine. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, I'm just going to use some in the Bible. There's one, actually, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is, is the example that comes to my mind. And uh, he, had, he had been given in the book of, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 4, 
Nebuchadnezzar had attained a great deal of wealth and, and prominence and stature. And uh, he had, his kingdom had spread all over the world and he was, he was uh, rolling in wealth and power and dignity and authority. And, and all of a sudden it, it went to his head. He wasn't just the king. He was the king that was above everyone else. He wasn't a mere mortal. He was above mortal men. So we read in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27, what happened to him. Daniel told him after he was interpreting a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, he said, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto you, and break off your sins by righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. In other words, he said, come down a step or two, Nebuchadnezzar. Come down and show some mercy to the poor. Pride lifts us above our fellows. Egoism actually lifts us up above. And Nebuchadnezzar was just lifted up so high that he just couldn't imagine himself being anything but on the same level as God himself. And Daniel is saying, watch out. Think about the poor. Come on down. He said, so it can be a lengthening of your tranquility. You can, you can get peace this way. All this, it says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar because his thinking got him too far above mortal human beings. He said, at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon and the king spoke and said, here's what the king was thinking. He said, is not this great Babylon that I've built for the house of my kingdom by the might of my power or the, for the honesty or for the honor of my majesty? He said, I've done all this. This is while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you. And so they will drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and they will make you to eat grass as oxen and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. It's God who rules, not you, Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who rules. Well, Nebuchadnezzar learned that, and when he came back, when he after seven times, after seven years, he was reinstated, and then he understood that. And he made this statement. He said, God rules in the kingdoms of men. So he understood it. World emperors have, have for a long time, especially in the Roman world and others before that in the Egyptian reigns and so forth. But Roman rulers were notorious for the fact that they claimed to be God. They weren't just rulers. They weren't just emperors. They were divine. And so Nero said he was a God. Remember the reason why Jesus was talking in Matthew chapter 24, Luke 13 and not Luke 13, Mark 13 and Luke 21. He was talking about the coming fall of the temple and it was Titus the ruler of Rome who came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple but it was Titus who set his own image up in the temple and said come worship me instead of the God of heaven all the emperors had coins stamped and images but coins stamped declaring the fact that they were God and it was the fact that Christians would not acknowledge the fact that the Roman emperors were gods, that they were fed to the lions and persecuted. Okay. 
It, but it wasn't just. It wasn't just the Roman emperors. There have been individuals in our society, in our time, who have ascended to the point in their own thinking, in their own writing, in their own feelings, that they are, in fact, Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Different ones. And I'll, I'll tell you some popular ones that you'll recognize right away. You may, you may not recognize this first guy. His name was uh, Father Divine. Father Divine. Now his name, he actually, his name was, was uh, let me think about it. His name, name was uh, Charles Willis Divine. So, Father Divine, he claimed to be God in the flesh. And he, lived, he, died, he died in 1968. There are others that I'll mention in just a minute, but the fact is that there have been those who have made that claim throughout our, our lifetime that they are, in fact, Jesus Christ. So they're, they're looking for the power of Jesus. Now what Jesus said in his, in his, before he died, what he said was that he was, going, he was the Son of God, that he was the Son of Man, that he was coming to redeem mankind, and what was said of him was that he was the one with all the power. After he resurrected, he took his disciples aside and he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. So he had all, all power. So when, when someone is saying, I am the Christ, what he's saying is, not only do I want the glory and the esteem and the fame of Jesus, but I want his power. I want people to do what I tell them to do. I want them to obey me, to listen to me, and to take my judgments and my statements and assume that what I'm saying is what God wants you to do. That's basically what's going on. Now, Philippians chapter 2 at verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the imposter comes along and says, I am, or I stand in the place of Jesus. Therefore, whatever I say, you need to do. Because I am the Christ. Exercising control over huge masses of men, women and children, is highly tempting to those with a grandiose attitude. I want people to do what I say. And I want them to think that what I think is the best. That my judgment is better than anybody else's judgment. And my regulations and my requirements are above what anybody else would say. And I want my fellow man to grovel at my feet and address me in terms of respect and reverence and feed my ego. Now, that's power, isn't it? To get people to do what you want them to do and to get them to understand or to think that whatever you say is right and cannot be wrong. Now, that'd be fun at home, wouldn't it, fellas? If, if you could reach the point where your wife would just say, okay, Whatever he says is right, I don't question it. Now that doesn't happen very often, does it? But that's basically, you just, you just increase that and multiply that and think about that in terms of a monarch. 
of someone who's ruling over people and someone who has the, the esteem of others who actually believe that that individual is speaking on the behalf of God. And you're, you're talking about a lot of power, aren't you? The most outstanding example, and I said a while ago, there's several that are like this. I should have started with this one. The one who has the most authority along these lines and the one that is most popular along these lines is the Pope of Rome. In the Second Vatican Council in 1868, Pope Pius IX declared that whatever he said was the words of God. Whatever he spoke from the chair, which is called ex cathedra, was the words of God. He, he actually, the Pope, Pope Leo II, I believe it was, or the, yeah, I believe it was, Pope Leo II said that he sat as the vicar of Christ, which means he was actually the representative of Christ. So we have individuals who have risen to that state in their own mind and with their own people who have said, I, whatever I tell you is what Jesus is telling you. So, whatever I say goes. Now, I have to remind you of this. That when John the Baptist lost his head to Herod, it was because when Herod made a statement as a king, it could not be taken back because he felt that he was speaking on the behalf of God. And that's what the old ancient kings thought. And that's sometimes what is called in, in the... In, in uh, Europe, in the mid, mid Middle Ages, the European kings came up with the idea that they had a divine right. It's called the divine right of kings. That whatever they said or did came directly from God. Now the warning Jesus was, made was, there will be some coming saying, I am the Christ. They'll come in my name. That's where the power comes from. Coming in my name. I started to mention some others. Father Divine claimed that he was the representative of God. That Jesus was speaking through him. And as a matter of fact, he called himself Jesus Christ. Jim Jones, you recall Jim Jones and the, and the problem in Guyana. He claimed that he was Christ. Charles Manson claimed that he was Jesus Christ. So it's not unusual for charlatans to come along and say, I am the Christ, and to exercise that authority so that whatever whoever heard them speak or whoever saw them do anything believed that it came directly from God. Now, the third point, the first point was the fame. I want the fame. I want the notoriety. I want people to look at me and respect me like they would Jesus Christ because he was God. And I want them to do what I ask them to do. That's the power because I am Jesus Christ. And the third is fortune. Fortune. Now, Paul said the love of money is the root of all evil. And when we talk about fortune, we're talking about people who want as, to amass as much treasure as they possibly can on this earth. And who better to collect money and fortune than God himself in their estimation? 
basically. If I am the Christ, I, I, can, I can command the fortunes of this earth be brought to my feet, basically. And that's, that's how people that have a religious bent think. Now, think about this. Religion has been, always been the most lucrative venture of capital in this world. Always has been. The two most powerful entities in this world, wealth-wise, Roman Catholicism and Islam. Roman Catholicism actually controls more money as an institution and more wealth than many countries and more than any endeavor in the world. They are the most powerful, influential, wealthy organization in the world. Most powerful. They have uh, great treasures in property, in art. They control banking. They control commerce. They control the steel industries. They control finance. Every aspect of financial venture, the Roman Catholic Church holds the, uh, the greatest amount of wealth and treasure in the world. So if a person wants to get wealthy, basically, I'm not, I'm not trying to bring them up as, as a, a point of uh, criticism, but what I'm saying is that people who claim to be Christ draw in a great deal of money, wealth. They do. Think about the televangelists whose financial treasures are not known. They fly around the world in private jets. They drive in luxury cars. They live in palatial palaces. They dress in the finest clothing. They eat in the best restaurants because they are well proportioned financially because people give them money. Wealth is power. And therefore, one of the main reasons that the, the framers of our Constitution separated the church and state was because of that. So our Constitution demanded that uh, church and state be separate because of that very factor. False Christ, or pretenders, do not want to imitate or impersonate the real Christ. They prefer the world's notion of what the Christ should be. So what I've presented to you is what the world thinks the Christ ought to be. He ought to be famous, he ought to be powerful, and he ought to be wealthy. But as to the fame of Jesus, think about it. Jesus warned his disciples and he said, if the world hates you, you need to know that it hated me before it did you. Jesus is not famous. Now, there, there are people who believe that he is. Some think that he is. In the world, Jesus is not famous. Every once in a while, the world will stop and pause for a while and think about Jesus. But in terms of him being the Christ and of controlling their lives, he's not famous. His, his name is famous, but it's used more as a curse word than it is used as a word or a name of adoration. So when a person wants to be the Christ, think about it. He's not wanting to be popular, is he, with the world? Jesus was not popular. Jesus was taken to the cross. And he told his apostles, he said, Don't you know what? They hated me, and he said, They're gonna hate you too. 
They'll hate you too. So why would anyone want to be the Christ? For the whole world to hate them? That's not what the world thinks about when it thinks about the Christ. And that's not what the charlatans think about. They think, well, Jesus is so very, very popular. So very popular. They have parades in his name. Basically, if you look at the parades that they have in the name of Jesus, you'll find orgies that are the offspring of these parades. But Jesus isn't popular. He's not famous. Does he have power? As to his status, did Jesus have power? Well, he was despised and rejected of men. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He uh, made himself of no reputation, was made in the form of a servant. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. If a man wants to be the Christ, he, he, he needs to be in the form of a servant rather than the form of a master. Instead of being exalted and borne aloft on the shoulders of worshipers, he was mocked. He was shamed. He was whipped. And he was crucified. That's the sort of power Jesus had. And the only power he has today is through one word. Love. And the only place that Jesus reigns is in the heart of the believer. Not in the halls of the famous. Jesus lives in the hearts of those who believe in him. So when we're looking at power, we're looking at someone who has the power exercised to a form that the world is really not that familiar with. Jesus said there are only two commandments. One is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Others to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the power that Jesus wielded. Now why would any man want to be the Christ? He's not famous. He's not powerful. Well, maybe he's wealthy. Is Jesus wealthy? He became poor for our sake. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Jesus was not wealthy. The treasures that were cast at Jesus' feet were not the jewels and gold and the treasures of this earth. That which was cast at Jesus' feet was the poor and the despised and the sick and the ailing. That's what was cast at his feet. Jesus said, didn't come and say, hey, take care of me. He said, cast all your cares upon me. I'll take your burdens. My, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll take care of you. You don't have to take care of me. I'll care for you. In First Timothy, First Peter chapter five, verse seven, he says, "Cast our cares on Him; He will care for us." And He invites us to come. Jesus died as a criminal. He died as a criminal. His only possessions that He had, He said at one time when they said, "We want to come see where you live," He said, "I don't have a place to live." He said, the birds have nests and the foxes have holes. He said, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay His head. Well, we know what that means. That the only place that Jesus lays His head is in your heart, in your bosom. That's the only place He has that He can call home. He didn't have any mansion. He didn't have any treasure. He had nothing. 
And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. That's all he had. So a person says, I want to be the Christ. I want the fame of Jesus. And so they, they miss, it's a misadventure. It's a misconception. Who would want that type of fame? I, I, want, I want the notoriety of Jesus. I want the power of Jesus. What power did Jesus have? You remember the ruler brought him before him? When, uh, when he was being questioned by the rulers, they kept asking him, Who are you? Who do you think you are? You, th- you say you're the Christ? They kept asking him, kept probing him. They didn't care. And then they, then they turned him over to the Roman ruler, Pontius Pilate. Pilate said, Don't you know that I, he said, I have the right to, to kill you, to put you to death? Jesus said, You wouldn't have any right if it weren't for my father. What he was saying was, God has that right. My father has that right. But Jesus was standing as a lamb before the shearers. He had no power whatsoever on this earth. My friend, Jesus has power by virtue of your faith in Him, putting Him in your heart and letting Him guide your life through this life. That's where Jesus' power is. But not in the, not in the halls of the, of the strong and the governors and the magistrates and the rulers of this world. The power of Jesus is in His love for you. And then He arose. He is the living Christ of God, and He's the only one. I know and I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that He rose again, and I believe that He lives in my heart. He is famous because of His sacrifice, not because of his status and wealth among men. He is powerful because he can guide and direct humanity through the avenue of the heart and the feeling and belief in him. And, of course, he has wealth, and his wealth comes in the fact that he is the living Son of God, and he sits at the right hand of God, and he has the control of heaven and earth and will give us a place to live after a while. I believe that Jesus is Christ. I believe He's the only Christ. God help you reach the same conclusion. I think you have anyway. He is the Christ and we need to serve Him. Give our lives to Him.
communion, which has the bread and the fruit of the vine. After the prayer for the bread, peel off the top and take the bread wafer, which is in there. And then after the prayer for the fruit of the vine, peel off the second seal. And then there's fruit of the vine in, in, in the bottom. And then, as uh, Tom mentioned, there's a, on the way out, there's a basket you can dispose of this uh, portable container. Let us pray for the bread. Our most loving Heavenly Father, we are indeed thankful for the privilege to gather here with souls of precious faith in our heart to partake of this communion with thee, the bread which represents thy son's body on the tree, that one and only sacrifice for the world, that the world might come to thee and give forgiveness of their sins and have eternal life with thee. We pray we may always partake of this understanding, this in our hearts and in our soul. For this is our prayer in thy son's most holy name. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for the fruit of the vine. Father, we thank thee for the privilege we have to be with Jesus, to partake of the fruit of the vine, which in our hearts and minds represents his blood on the tree, that blood that redeems the world for those who believe in him and in thee and come to the cross asking for forgiveness of sins. We pray, Father, to partake of the fruit of the vine. We recognize its significance in our hearts do so in a manner which will be pleasing unto thee. This is our prayer in thy son's most holy name. Amen. Amen. closing prayer Father we're indeed full of joy and happiness to be able to meet here again with souls of like precious faith to see our brothers and sisters once again which we rejoice and, and thank you for the privilege and the opportunity and the things that have happened in the uh, medical area that we are able to gather again and see each other for we miss each other's presence in our hearts we pray father and thank thee for the message being brought to us and the messages that were recorded by bill previously for over a year which we're very grateful and know that they are wonderful things for us in our hearts when we are separated we thank thee for all those who support and help things in these services which we're very grateful for we pray father that this may continue that we may be able to gather here every Sunday, every first day of the week, that more and more may come with confidence. We pray, Father, you be with us through this week, to guide our hearts and our souls and our behavior before Christ, knowing that he is the ruler, the Son of God, the one and only Christ. Be with us now and watch over those, who, Father, who are still very ill and help them, Father, in their uh, 
illness that they may be able to recover. This is our prayer in thy son's most holy name. Amen. Amen. Peace like a river.